Welcome to The Fabric Podcast. As we dig into this dangerous book, the Bible. Yes, it's been dangerous in all the wrong ways over the years, but maybe, just maybe, it might be dangerous in a rich, challenging, hopeful kind of way in each of our lives too. Here's Greg Meyer. Last Sunday, uh, Sunday night, I was running around Lake Nokomis, and on the path, some of you might recognize it. I don't know if you, you see what I see in that picture. Yeah, they're on the pavement. See those bumps? Uh, going, going a little bit even closer yet. Boom. See that one on the right? That, what, all the little red stuff? Along the shoreline are all these alders growing along the edge of the lake, and they are coming up. They're just forcing their way right through the pavement. You can see there's another spot kind of over on the left. Then on the very, in the middle, on the very left, you'll see kind of a little crack. That's a little raised place. I mean, it's not going to be long. That pavement is just going to be torn to pieces by life that will not stop and will not be held back. And I just think that's an amazing thing. Anyway, so I wanted to, I wanted to share that with you because it's that time of year out there right now. And it might have something to do with what we're talking about today, too, but we'll see. Anyway, so this is our fifth week. Oh, and by the way, if you're listening on the podcast, um, the, this picture is going to be attached to the description, so you can go see it there. Okay, so this is our fifth week of delving into this dangerous book, the Bible. We are um, doing more than like just scratching the surface, although 100 weeks wouldn't even begin to touch all the stuff that's in here. But... You know, we're doing more than just scratching the surface because what we're doing is we're working really hard to give you some tools, some practice, and some inspiration so this book can be dangerous to you in the best of all possible ways. Uh, that means it's disrupting sort of the isolation that we tend to find that ourselves pulled into or fall into by ourselves, the status quo that is created by the momentum of, you know, popular culture around us, or, um, you know, or even just that the limits that get put upon us, that we get boxed in with because of fear, or because of our lack of vision of the world, our inability to see the big picture. Those are the kinds of danger that this book can pose to us, and we want to be pushing that. Now, the not-so-good version of the danger that this book represents, which unfortunately is also all too familiar to us, is that sometimes it gets used to further human ambitions, human agendas. It does it by trying to control, by trying to oppress, even by, you know, we certainly know the examples of causing wars out of hate. Now, that has made a lot of people think, maybe, maybe the world would be better off without this book. You know, and I, I get that. Um, sometimes I'm hesitant myself to tell someone, just go read it, because it's not that simple, right? And it's hard to understand. But, um, you know, my short response to the fact that this book can be used and has been used for bad sorts of danger in the past, and so we should just get rid of it, my, my answer to that is all of that hate, all of that anger that is already in people, and people are going to find a hook to hang that stuff on. If it isn't the Bible, they'll do it with something else. So what does it mean we do with this? It means, like, can we find ways of helping it be what we need. There is no cure for the danger, for the damage that this Bible you know, can be used to create. But when more people are equipped to be able to unleash the good that is within it, one, we can help the message, we can help the story do the good in the world that it can be, and we can start to dismantle some of the damage that is done in its name as well. So 
That way, maybe we can build a better world and maybe counteract some of that damage. So um, what I wanted to do today is really two things, and it's kind of the same thing we've been doing these last bunch of weeks, and that is to give you another fresh view of what the Bible offers and also um, a glimpse of how it can work for good and counter the damage that I was just talking about. So to understand how we do that, I want to revisit these three strands. Any of you ever hear us refer to these three strands before? I see a couple eye rolls out there. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we talk about these three strands a lot. Um, you know, the first strand being of ourself, our true self, another being of others, all others, the world, everything. The third being this third strand, you know, um, often just called God, Yahweh, all that is. I am who I am, which is what the name of Yahweh means. I mean, it, I'd like to not worry so much about what name we refer to the third strand with and just realize that all, all of us are trying to capture something. We're trying to put words around something that is too big for words to ever try to capture and sum up and uh, work with it from that perspective. But um, the, the reason we talk about these three strands is because it works. I mean, they provide us a metaphor of understanding how all this spiritual, how this community, how this life of growth really happens within us better than maybe any other metaphor that I've ever run into. So um, let me talk about it in a slightly different way for a minute that might help us understand the why of getting to know the Bible. Let's consider those strands. First, there's the first strand, right? Uh, that represents just you, just me. It is good. It's sacred. It's important. It is also disconnected. It sits there by itself. Your and my self-strand disconnected will wander anywhere and everywhere. Our single strands have some purpose. They have some direction within themselves. But the direction and the purpose we have is limited by what we are able to comprehend, what we're able to know, uh, how we're able to wrap our arms and hold on to the stuff of this world. And I think we all know that that's not probably enough, right? So now when you weave yours then with a second strand representing, you know, someone, representing a group of someones that you happen to be with, suddenly yours, as you begin to, you know, weave with them, yours is being pulled towards them, right? And the direction and the purpose that they see. And also theirs is being pulled towards you. You can see that in how we do that with, you know, relationships, personal relationships, marriages, partnerships, we can see how we do with our kids, with the people that we hang around with the best, uh, groups we associate ourselves with. And uh, what, what that does is that allows us to have some other directions, maybe some other purposes. It allows us to have the possibility of higher purposes, but it can also connect us to purposes that are less worthy of us, can't it? I mean, that is one of the possibilities. Another thing that it does for us, though, is it helps us have momentum in the direction that we're going in because it doesn't rely just on our own motivation, our own stick to about what's important to us. But we have other people that are reinforcing that with us. And that has a lot of potential. Doing things together is stronger, has more potential. Then there's a third strand, a third strand that wants to get in on the act with us. And the other two strands are pulled in the direction of that one and that third strand also responds to us in order to know us, in order to engage with us, in order to understand us, in order to be with us. And so it comes our way, but we are also pulled that way. Now, now suppose that that third strand 
that we just got woven with is particularly strong. Just, just suppose it happens to be particularly strong. And because it's strong, it pulls the others that were less directed, less anchored, less aware of their place among all things, more in line with itself. It's able to exert more influence. Now, that's what happens when you or I dare to take your single strand and to weave it. To weave it, what does that mean? To be in deep relationship with others. And also then, when we together dare to weave our strands, us as a community, us as groups of relationships, and weave ours, enter deep relationship with that third strand, with God. Now, there are many ways of weaving those relationships, of developing those deep relationships. A lot of ways that that happens, but one of them is, frankly, through this dangerous book. It doesn't happen automatically, right? The Bible isn't magic. Read a verse a day, read a book a day, or a chapter a day or something, and suddenly you're enlightened, you're in tune with God and the universe, and you're also a really good person. It doesn't work that way at all. But it can be a significant way of letting the voice of God be in the mixture of your life so that it seeps into the soil of who you are in the world and the way that you understand this world. And that can be changing. That can be game-changing for you. Now realize... It isn't this voice versus all the other competing voices out there, okay? That's really important. Uh, The Bible's voice helps you understand and helps you know what to do. It helps you see the role and the message of all those other voices, all of which are in some way and at some level also speaking the voice of God. So it's a part of that mix. It isn't the whole thing. Now, I want you to hold on to that, and we'll see how it works. So I want to get back to the book itself and some stories, because there's a couple of stories I want to share with you today. And the first one of them comes from uh, the Gospel of Mark. Mark is one of the four Gospel writers, the Gospels being the books in the Bible that talk about the life of Jesus. Uh, Mark is the second one in the order there. And this is a Jesus story, okay? Except that it isn't a Jesus story. Ironic, right? Um, It isn't a Jesus story. It's actually a you story or a a me story. Um, It's one that got stuck in the Bible, probably, you know, kind of like snuck past the editors, if there was such a thing, um, thinking that they got another really good Jesus story. But Jesus, wanting to upend things and make sure that what he really wanted communicated was communicated, kind of snuck something in there that made it a little bit subversive, that made it a revolutionary message that we only catch when we slow down enough to hear what is actually being said there. Um, Just a little sidebar thought. What if Jesus all along knew that it wasn't about him? What if he actually knew that his role and why he was so unique and worthy of being so central to this book was because he was able to help us see the story that is truly about us and see ourselves in that story differently than we ever would have imagined it otherwise. Okay, so this story, 
It's told in one form or another, actually varies widely in all four Gospels, and it happens very late in Jesus' life. I mean, very late in Jesus' life, at a time when things were very contentious, all right? There was um, arguments, uh, his uh, confrontations, his popularity with the masses was really the only thing for protecting him at this point at all. In fact, the story begins by telling us, uh, this is on your sun, uh, Sunday paper, it'll be up on the screen in a second, telling us that uh, the chief priests and the scribes, that is the religious leaders of the day, were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the festival, referring to Passover, it's just about Passover, for there may be a riot among the people. So it's a day or two before Jesus is arrested, before he's tried and killed, and he's gathered with his inner circle, his disciples and some others, men and women, in a town, Bethany, just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. And they're in a house, and a woman enters. Okay? Now, you can imagine security was probably pretty tight. I mean, not Secret Service type security, but they knew that Jesus and they were in trouble. So, like, you know, be careful, watch the door, who's coming in, and stuff like that, right? So, this woman, they must have known who she was in order to just let her come in while they're there. So, let me read the story. While Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, <laughs> interesting choice, we all go to the houses of lepers, right? Uh, just maybe another little indication of um, who Jesus was hanging with and who was actually interested in his story and who he thought was important. So while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at table, I'll quit doing all the side notes quickly, but Remember, tables in those days were like this, not like this. You know, just like a foot off the ground and people reclined around them. All right, so you can kind of just imagine people doing that. As he sat at table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment. And she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Translation, that's about a year's wages for a common worker, all right? So that was a lot of money. And the money could have been given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. And you always will have the poor with you. And you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Now, this story is loaded with messages and allusions, and it's part of a chain of events that I am not going to go chase down now, all right? Um, because they aren't the revolutionary thing that I'm interested in. Some of the real obvious things are her shocking display of devotion to Jesus. Um, you, know, you can't be overlooked. If you read Luke's version of this, you see her, she's crying, and her tears are washing his feet, and she's using her hair to dry them. I mean, that, that would have been a little surprising, right? Uh, the disciples' reaction also, I mean, the voice of reason that they ex express. <laughs> what? I mean, I mean, in our equivalent, like $50,000 being spent on this ointment poured over Jesus' head. I mean, really, does that make sense? Is that a responsible thing to do? I mean, 
I can't really fault them for voicing that. And then you have uh, Jesus' forever controversial reply, the poor will be with you always, you know, um, won't they? And I'm not going to be. I mean, that feels a little callous to me. It's a little self-aggrandizing. I mean, didn't he come to serve, not to be served? Yeah. But none of those are the controversial revolutionary idea that I'm interested in. I'm wondering if you did hear it. Um, It's really easy to miss. I know I read over this line forever until fairly recently when I caught my attention. I went, oh, that's what's going on here. I get it. It's this tiny detail that makes this not a Jesus story, but shows how Jesus made it into a very subversive story, how he made it your story and my story. I'll read the line. It's at the very end. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Of her. A woman. Jesus didn't say, what she did will be told in remembrance of what she did for me. He didn't say, it will be told as people remember me. No. She is to be the one remembered because of who she is, because of what she did. The story is about her. There's only one fill-in on your Sunday paper today. It's a record for me, by the way. (laughs) And this is it. Who is at the center of the story? The woman. This is not a story about Jesus. This is a story about that woman. Now, here we are, 2,000 years later, sitting on a different continent, and we are remembering, not Jesus, we are remembering her. Yeah, you may be thinking, yeah, but she doesn't have a name. She's anonymous. I mean, she was really important. If Jesus really wanted the story to be about her, wouldn't we know her name? And I go, maybe, but maybe she shouldn't have a name because Maybe if she has a name, then the story is particularly about her, not universally about all the hers, all the yous, all the, all the me's, that Jesus is saying, that's who the story is all about. You know, maybe what Jesus really wanted was for us to see ourselves, to see in that woman all those people who are part of Jesus weaving in, to realize that all of them matter for who they are, you for who you are, me, for who I am. Now, remember the picture that I showed you at the beginning of my message, those alders bursting through the pavement, the irrepressible force of nature, unstoppable life. That's what's happening here. What I hope you see in this dangerous book, there is life in this world. There is a message for us in this world, and the Bible shows it to us when we have eyes to see it. The pavement, the pavement are the layers of human imperfection that try to understand what was going on and try to tell a story and write this book. The pavement is the thousands of years that lie between us and those making it hard to understand what was going. The, the pavement is the language um, that is foreign and unusual to us and we don't understand exactly what they're saying. The, the pavement is the culture that has 
happen between their world and our world and makes it difficult for us to penetrate and find that life that is underneath it all. But life, it won't be stopped. The third strand will pull us toward what the Bible is meant to show us even when we, or the writers for that matter, don't get it and we don't know what we are seeing or what we are hearing. And here, the life breaking through that seemingly unpenetrable layers of blacktop is a woman. A woman in a man's world of 30 AD. A woman who is held up with an attribution that, was, that Jesus didn't give to any of the men that he was working with and traveling with. And in so doing, Jesus' message that everyone matters and that what they do is a life that is bursting through the pavement is loud and clear even in this patriarchal book from a patriarchal period. And Jesus wanted to make sure that it wasn't lost. Now, she isn't the only woman who mattered, of course. The Bible has lots of them, even though they tended to not be the headliners for those obvious reasons that we've already been mentioning. Um, But they couldn't be hidden. They don't go away. Mary, Jesus' mother. Who wants to be the parent of a revolutionary martyr? It's got to be the hardest role to play. But yet she continues to pop up in Jesus' life until at the foot of the cross, there she is mourning her child who is losing his life for others in a way that only a mother could feel it and that none of us, no one else in this world could ever understand the way she did. It's women who, like those who went to the tomb in the dim darkness of that Easter morning and were the ones to glimpse that this life that they knew as Jesus was not extinguished. It's Lydia, a woman um, who was of some wealth, who appeared to have provided for the disciples during the early years of the church at a time when they weren't able to care for themselves. And so she did. And then there was Deborah. Deborah. Um, remember Jephthah a couple weeks ago? We talked about him, one of the judges from Israel long, long ago. Um, that was the prehistory of Israel, when they were bathed in the myths of legend and saga. Uh, there was one, another judge. There were a lot of judges. There was another judge, one of the very first ones, whose name was Deborah. Uh, she was a rather extraordinary person. Her story is told in the book of Judges, chapters 4 and 5. Um, her story is not G-rated, not even really PG-13. It's really kind of an R-rated story. Um, and uh, it's, it's a story that maybe her name may be mentioned in Sunday school curriculum, but I doubt they go into the story too much because, yeah, a um, lot of debriefing when the kid got home. So Deborah was a prophet. Deborah was a prophet. Whatever that meant at that, in that era. Uh, she's a prophet of these scattered tribes of Israel before they became a nation. And she was a judge at a time when the Canaanites, neighboring power, was ruling over the people of Israel. And as a prophet, she held on to the vision of Israel's future and was summoning her people to free themselves from the Canaanites, right? And so she calls on one person to lead them to battle, to free themselves from the Canaanites. And that person that she has to lead them said he wouldn't go without her. So she says, fine, I'll go along with you. But you know that you aren't going to get credit for 
defeating the enemy, defeating Sisera, who was the general of the Canaanite army, because someone else is going to be doing it. You know? So, ouch, right? You know, the, the guy general isn't going to get credit for this because a woman's going to be doing it instead. Um, now, the funny twist here is, remember that she's a prophet, right? And getting credit for what is going to happen isn't what she is about. It's about Israel being the people they were called to be and about people being the people who are able to make it happen actually stepping up and doing it. So it turns into a pretty bloody story, like I said. Chapter 4 in Judges tells a story. Chapter 5 retells it, but as a song that Deborah sings um, with a lot more detail worked in there. And in this Game of Thrones, script-worthy story with all of its twists and turns and subplots. Um, Sisera, the Canaanite general, escapes while all of his soldiers are defeated because their chariots are bogged down when a sudden rainstorm comes and all that. And, and he, Sisera escapes, and he goes to the house of Jael, who is the wife of another leader whom they have a treaty with, right? So he figures he's safe. And she kills him. Um, it's both gruesome and vividly described. So um, <laughs> don't read it for devotions tonight with your kids. Um, so, so this is what's going on here. Her general wasn't going to get credit because a woman was going to defeat Sisera, but not who the, leader, the reader expected, or not who the hearer, right? Remember, these are stories that were created at times when people couldn't read, when there weren't books. And they sat around campfires and, and, and told the stories of their people that helped them understand their identity and who they were and what their place in the world was. And this is a story, and it needed to be gripping because they're going to be hearing it time after time. And there was a twist to the story that no one saw coming, that there was going to be a different woman. Now, you have to suspend some of your judgment over the battles and the gore that are in this story um, and face it. I mean, hey, what are the stories about our heroes? I mean, the action TV shows and movies, do they really buy into the thou shalt not kill thing? I mean, no, they don't, right? I mean, so right, that's the vehicle. The story is the vehicle. It's the cargo that we're supposed to pay attention to. The cargo, the message of Deborah is this. Imagine these ancient people being regaled by a story of how Israel became the people of God, a heritage that they were now called to uphold with boldness and courage. And this remarkable time in their history that they are hearing about today, it happened because of the uniqueness. It happened because of the cleverness. It happened because of the brilliance of a woman. A woman. One more story. Esther. Kids are hearing about, this, about Esther as well today. Um, she writes a whole book in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, right before the time of Jesus. It's a novella of sorts about a woman who, um, who saves Israel. It's another PG-13, probably actually an R-rated um, story as well. I'd be willing to bet that Heidi isn't going into a lot of detail with the kids today on some of that. Um, so, Esther, let, let me give you her context first, because we're, you know, one of the goals here is like, can you understand, can you kind of grasp what's going on in this big book, right? So, first of all, 
you know, we had those judges, right, about 3,000 years ago. And they were ruling, running over, trying to keep this crazy set of tribes that made up Israel together. And then after that, they decided, no, we want to be a nation. And they started having kings, you know, Saul, David, Solomon, and those. And that went all the way up to 586 B.C. when the Babylonians, they, they were from the area that is now under, we now see as Iraq, that's that part of the world. They came and they destroyed the temple. I mean, we actually have historical verification of the exact year when that happened. And they um, overran Israel, they destroyed the temple, took everybody away into captivity. They were, so Israel's in, in, um, uh, Israel is in exile. And then there is a return from the exile until there's another defeat. This time it's Persia, which is located in modern-day Iran. And that is when the Jewish people then get carried into exile into Persia. And that is where our story takes place now. This is about 150 years before the common era, before the time of Jesus. Now, you can read her story. It's not a bad read. It's only 10 pages long, right? Um, But I want to cut to the chase. So here's what you need to know. Esther is a young woman. She's a Jewish young woman of, you know, nothing remarkable, not wealthy or anything like that. I mean, they're exiles. They're basically slaves in Persian territory at this time. Um, but uh, at this time, the Persian king needs a new wife because Vashti won't pay any attention to him. You know, um, that's a problem. So um, she won't see him at all. And he's not happy about this. And he not only banishes Vashti, his existing king, but he makes a proclamation. I want you to hear this one. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. <laughs> That's going to work, right? Yeah. In fact, it's really funny. You have a 2,200-year-old book mocking the, the attempts of patriarchy to hold on. I mean, so some may think this declaration was going to work, but it wasn't. It was just the pavement rolled over the budding roots of alders that are not going to be stopped. And the hearers of the story knew that this putting of women in their place was not the point of the story. It was the setup for the point of the story. Okay? So, beautiful virgins are gathered together for the king to choose one of. And of course, Esther is one of them, and she is selected. But she keeps her Jewish identity a secret. Now, there's a whole lot of other subplots and things all weaving themselves together here, and I'm not going to go into it all, so read the story. But along with it, another subplot that's coming in is that one of the king's main noblemen has his own grudge, and so out of vengeance, he, he makes another proclamation, and that is that all Jewish people in all Persian lands are to be killed. Now, that's a problem for Esther because that's all of her people. And it's also her, right? So she's got to do something about this. She's got to go talk to the king about what one of her noblemen is doing. But she's not allowed to do that because she can't talk to the king until she's called on. And she hasn't been called on for 30 days. And so, you know, it's actually a threat of death. If you unsolicitedly appear before the king, that's it for you. But um, Esther, who had carefully not rocked the boat up to this time was no longer willing to hold silence. She became a woman of determination and a woman of courage. So when she is told, who knows, perhaps you have come to royal position for such a time as this, she responds, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I am killed, I will be killed. 
Now, there are, like I said, many other twists and turns in the plot. Remember, these are the action thrillers of 2,300 years ago. Um, and often we have blandly lumped everything that is in this book into something and just labeled it the Holy Bible, and we yawn and go to sleep and think it's all boring. Probably a bunch of it is. Um, but there's some really rich stuff in here. There's an authentic and compelling voice that wants to be heard. And in the end, it is Esther's courage and skills that saves Israel from genocide, allowing them to reclaim their identity and their homeland. Esther, a common woman who, like you and me, has come to a position that she is in for such a time as this. You don't suppose that's talking about you and me too, huh? Just maybe. So three stories. Three women. The alabaster jar lady, Deborah, Esther. So why the Bible? Why the Bible? You know, you don't have to read it. You don't have to have it. You don't have to know it. Like I said, God, Yahweh, I am who I am, is too big to stay confined. And the Word of God is actually the operating system behind the universe. Right? It, it will be known. It will continue to rise up no matter what. It will always be found anywhere you look if you look deeply enough. So I guess we don't really need the Bible. But then, uncounted generations for over a thousand years knocked this stuff around and said, here, here it is. Th this is our history of figuring out who God is and who we are. See if it helps you. You know, it's interesting that day I um, walked around the lake or ran around the lake and I, I saw this. The, the trail was actually really busy and people are going past it all the time and no one was noticing this at all. It just like surprised me. And I, one guy stopped and asked me what I was taking a picture of down on my hands and knees. And I showed him the roots of the trees trying to come up through the pavement and explained what was going on. And he said, hmm, interesting, and walked on. <laughs> Clearly unimpressed but I couldn't leave it alone. It was showing me something I need to know. I want you to pause. I want you to take a breath right now. I want you to hear these words with your heart, not just your head. You know, despite the layers of time and language and culture, culture separating you from the living core of the Bible, the word of life will find its way through. It's unstoppable. And not because the Bible is sitting on your shelf, but because you're rumbling with it with your head and your heart, and you're chattering with, you're letting it chatter with the stories of your life and the stories of the world around you. And it's important to know that some of those rumblings are about these dangerous people. Three women, the woman with the alabaster jar, Deborah, Esther. They change things. 
because of what they did. Not because of something Jesus did, not because of what God did, not because of what the men around them, but what they did because their lives were deeply woven within themselves, with the world around them, and with Yahweh, their God. The third strand um, wants us to know that they mattered, that you matter, and that I matter. It does not want that truth to be forgotten or to be abandoned or to be buried by powers or systems that would rather have everything be all about themselves. And so it weaves its way with you and with me and with us as a community, and it pulls us towards what we need to hear so that we have the direction and we have the purpose that we need when we need them for such a time as this. May it ever be so. Thanks for listening. We hope these conversations are helpful and connective. You can find out more about Fabric at fabricmpls.com. There you can find notes from previous conversations and other resources for deepening your relationships with the threads of yourself, others, and that third strand we often call God. You can also find ways of connecting to a group, whether you're in the Twin Cities or not. You can join in supporting this community financially, too. It's through the generous giving of people like you that Fabric is sustained. Again, that's fabricmpls.com. Thanks for being Fabric in your unique